Chapter Three: A Promise Unsaid. Over the sounds of musical instruments tuning in the courtyard, Herman stood in front of a mirror on the door in the dimly lit gendarmerie closet, while he put on the musty off-black suit Klaus had given him. This was too big. It was so big that it made him look like a clown, though this wasn't done intentionally. There were no suits his size, not in the camp or anywhere else. Still, this didn't make him feel any better, especially when he saw more than just a clown in the mirror. This one had hollow cheeks, complemented by a pair of sunken eyes and a complexion as coarse as sandpaper. His earlier shave and shower had only accentuated this and made him look even more ridiculous. Suddenly he stopped. He stopped with both the suit and the absurdity of the situation. With rising anger, he further called out Klaus's name, believing that the humiliation he was feeling made him no longer complicit in whatever would come next. What is it? Klaus growled from the other side of the door. I've changed my mind, Herman growled back. I want... Herman couldn't finish this thought as he saw something that broke his concentration. He saw his Anna. He saw her not in the mirror or in the closet or even in his imagination as he had on his way to the gendarmerie. He saw her in what he supposed was a memory, though he knew it was more than that. It was so vivid that it all seemed to be taking place in the present while returning him a few years earlier to an evening in his old apartment on Alishka Krasnohorska Street in Yosefov. Herman saw not only Anna, but all her unsold paintings standing on easels in their living room. This is where they had been since the Reich had closed her art gallery, after finding her work a form of degenerate art, which they applied inconsistently and only when purposes suited them, such as when punishing the wife of a prominent Jew. Anna was not far from the paintings. She was brooding in front of them from her rocking chair a few steps away. She once told Herman that she could see her whole life's arc in her works, from her carefree student days to her search for some greater purpose as she approached midlife all the way to the despair of the occupation. Though Herman also believed she saw herself as a piece of art, one that would never be fully realized or leave the slightest of footprints, and he knew this was all his fault. Herman stared at her paintings too, and he saw how her subjects had grown darker in recent years. Her early works, while not exactly joyous, had expressed the promise of joy and all the hope that accompanied it, but her newer ones expressed only the inevitability of disappointment and ruin. This was especially true of her latest painting, which depicted the buildings in their neighborhood leaning over each other in the dead of night, looking as if they were about to collapse with their building in the center of it. Herman turned from this, and he realized there was a record playing on the phonograph a few steps from Anna, Zdenovin Sikova's Smutna Nejele, known as the Hungarian Suicide Song, in the few years since Rezo Sherish had composed it, it had been recorded in many languages, 
and in countries throughout the world and had been banned in some. Its tale of mad desperation had been blamed for a rash of deaths, including in the English-speaking world, where Billie Holiday had sung a haunting rendition of it called Gloomy Sunday that few listeners would forget. The record mesmerized Herman. It also caused him to gaze out the window and the escape it offered. He only came out of this when an envelope slid under their front door. Slowly, he crept over to this. With some reluctance, he picked it up too, and he opened it, and he found an official-looking letter, along with an abundance of stars made from cheap yellow cloth. Before he could even start reading the letter, Anna grabbed it and the stars from him and read the letter herself. This letter to collect his coats from the nearby closet and his suit jackets from the bedroom a short distance away. I won't do it, he called out to her from outside the bedroom as he balled up the envelope and threw it onto the floor. I won't wear them. Vishatnam Shipadya. Anna didn't respond to any of this not even to his affirmation of his intentions in Czech, which was a language he only spoke to her when he couldn't express to her in German what he wanted to say in the way he wanted to say it. Ignoring it all, she returned from the bedroom with the garments and her sewing kit, along with the look that muted all his fury, the very same look he had seen on the way to the gendarmerie. She returned to her rocking chair too, and she began working. She even looked a little relieved, probably because she could finally take her eyes away from her misery. But the same couldn't be said of Herman. Watching his wife sew the stars into his clothes caused his fury to come roaring back. This was so out of character for him, but not without reason, as it was bad enough to suffer the humiliation of the stars, but this was made worse by making her a part of it. His fury built and built. When it finally exploded, he stormed up to her and grabbed the letter from the chair's arms rest before ripping it into shreds. He grabbed his clothes from her too. I'll dare them to shoot me, he snarled. I'll go down to the street right now and dare them. Calmly, she rose from her chair and she shook her head in a slow but continuous manner, which she would do not when she wanted to express disapproval of his actions, but when she wanted him to do so himself. They're just going to shoot me anyway, he insisted, while wanting to cry but unable to do so. But not now, she insisted back, before grabbing all the clothes from him. Until then, they're still now. Again she sat in the rocking chair, and again she began sewing. She even looked happy, and Herman couldn't understand why. He would say that it was one of the few mysteries he could never solve. But I've since learned the source of Anna's joy. It happened after the Iron Curtain fell, and I could freely travel to Prague. It was then I visited the National Gallery, which is one of the largest art museums in Central Europe. In a far-off corner of the building, I found a pair of Anna's paintings. For hours I stared at them, while trying to come up not only with the cause of her happiness that evening, but also as to what would lead her to the choice she would later make, a choice that would so affect Herman's life 
and the lives of so many others, including my own. I stared at her paintings for so long that a member of the museum's staff noticed and approached me, curious as to why I was so interested in such an obscure artist. I told him, and he smiled at me before saying, These paintings have an interesting history. They were smuggled to Switzerland during the occupation, hidden in a bridal chest. They would have surely been burned otherwise, along with the rest of her work. There's such insolence in them. They're almost spitting in the face of everything the Nazis were about. Do you know anything about her? I asked. No one in the museum knows anything about her, he answered, other than that her talent was in excess. But I could give you the phone number of the woman who donated the paintings, Viera Davidova. She is one of the museum's benefactors. With great excitement, I got the number and called the woman right away. She agreed to meet me the following day in a restaurant on top of her office building in the Newtown section of the city. The only problem with this meeting was the table there provided a view of the Viltava River that was so stunning that it was difficult for me to concentrate on what Viera had to say, at least until the aging woman murmured, I knew Anna a little. You did, I muttered with lots of surprise. She responded by saying, My mother was her patron until, until we had to leave the city. This led me to glance at the woman's forearm, and I saw the same kind of number that had been tattooed on Herman. Did you know my grandfather? I breathlessly asked. Not really, she answered. I knew who he was. Everyone at Theresienstadt did. But he mostly kept to himself, understandably, and we never approached him, as my mother didn't want to do anything that would make him relive what had happened to Anna. I'm trying to better understand, Anna, I told the woman, and what my grandfather meant to her. She loved him very much, the woman told me back. Whenever she visited us, she talked more about him than she did of herself or her work. It was almost as if he were her work, and maybe he was. It's because of this I think Anna was happy that evening in their apartment. I think she saw that her life's arc wasn't in her paintings after all. They were nothing but representations of it, while the real thing was found in the man who had been standing beside her through all of it. It was through him that her life had been realized, and she must have felt that she'd always feel this way as long as he continued to stand beside her. What she told Herman next only strengthens my belief. You must promise me, she murmured while continuing her sewing. You must promise that no matter how impossible everything may seem, you'll always wait through whatever now you have left, even if it's to last only seconds more. I won't, he uttered. But Anna just smiled again, and this time Herman knew why. It was because she had heard the promise in his voice and she knew he had heard it as well. You've changed your mind about what? Klaus snarled from the other side of the gendarmerie closet door. Don't think I'm enjoying this any more than you are. 
and I can end it at any time. Just say the word. With the closet and the mirror and all this current reality returning, Herman desperately wanted to say this word. He even opened his mouth. But just because he had returned to the present didn't mean that Anna had gone or that his memory of her had left him. They were still with him, and so was the promise he had made to her. Only hours earlier, when he agreed to Klaus's demands, he thought that he could still change his mind. He thought he could do so at any time he found some reasonable excuse. But he saw now that this was nothing but a lie. He saw now that he could have no complicity in his death, no matter what excuses he made. Anna had seen to this. She had made sure that he would live for as long as he could. He would even pursue the murderer of Nazis if it meant living for a few seconds more. But that didn't mean he had to like it. So as he reached for the door, he made himself another promise.